I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... Anything that can be digitized, anything that can be automated will be. And what's left is actually our most human leadership traits, and that's really what's going to make the next generation of leaders rise to the top. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh, with producer Tracy Madigan. We're joined today by Jenny Blumenthal. She is the CEO and founder of a company called Corporate Rehab. Intriguing name. What they try to address for companies large, medium, and small is stuff like quiet quitting, burnout, future of work, the impact of artificial intelligence. This is just not the new design for the cafeteria. This is big stuff that's kicking into companies large and small everywhere. And the kinds of things that she's seeing, the kinds of changes she's predicting, and the kinds of tactics that a lot of today's managers, frankly, are not ready to implement, but will need to soon. These are the kinds of things our discussion touches on. And I think you'll find important and educational no matter what your role is in a private, public, or not-for-profit arena. Here's our talk. Jenny, welcome to What's Working in Washington. Thanks, Mark. Really happy to be here. What made you name your entity Corporate Rehab and what are the services it provides? Uh, I can start with the end and back up. Um, so the reason we named it Corporate Rehab is we are on a mission to rehab leadership. We feel that so many people are just surviving their careers and we want them to be thriving. And a lot of it um, really focuses on speaking, coaching, and counseling Fortune 500 execs and entrepreneurs to go through that process to really evolve their own leadership, which really starts with self-leadership and also goes into the way that they lead their teams through burnout and really getting more humanity into our leadership in a post-AI world world in the future of work. And the name actually almost became a joke. It came out of my own experience of um, I used to be a partner in a large consulting firm and uh, left my 20-year corporate career amidst extreme burnout. Um, I didn't realize I was in burnout at the time. And so as I left and I was trying to figure out what exactly just happened and how did I get burned out when I used to be uh, the person so excited about my work, um, I really started to delve into the research on what makes leaders burn out, what makes leaders, you know, really get to a point of feeling like they're not focused on their work anymore, and how can we actually work on engagement? And people started calling and saying, you know, what happened? What are you doing next? And I jokingly said, I'm putting myself through my own corporate rehab. Um, I'm trying to understand what kept me hooked on mindsets and patterns that I really outgrew and why I stayed in those mindsets and patterns so long. And that really led me to write my first best-selling book on the topic and then found this company where we really focus on a whole process to help others do their own rehab. As I'm sure you experience when you describe or your colleagues describe what you do to execs, I bet there's a lot of maybe hidden nodding in the room like, oh my God, that's me. Yes. Um, Let's go back to your career, uh, many, many years in large organizations, service organizations. I know you were, as you said, a large consulting firm in the D.C. area with a giant telecom firm, et, et cetera. Did you start to notice patterns of management behavior, upper management behavior early on? And, and I, one I always toss out is the old saw uh, back in the day, they'd say management by walking around. Remember that that term? Oh, yeah. In, in, in business school. 
Um, I always thought it was it was actually an idiotic term because it implied that the that the the big boss was he or she was sort of checking up on people. But in fact, I think that happened all the time. Are those some of the trends you saw? Are those some of the trends you're seeing maybe dissipating because of COVID and a new new way of working? What what's your sense of that term and, and maybe that kind of behavior? That's, I think it's a great point. I think that there's definitely something I saw either for some of the companies I worked for, or I was a consultant for a ton of companies across the Fortune 500. So often it was walking through their halls as well and seeing um, a number of executives struggle really with different generations coming into the workplace, how to manage different attitudes towards work, how to manage different ways that the work itself was changing. And whenever we see change and whenever we're trying to figure out what's coming next, there's always this pull back to the familiar. So I really like to think that so many of those leaders that are now, even now, in flash forward to today, calling for a full return to the office, uh, flexible plans and promises that were made pre-COVID or mid-COVID are now overturned. A lot of that's just us going back to what's familiar. And that that's understandable. It's human behavior in the face of change and when we're afraid. But just because it's familiar, it doesn't mean that that's good for you. And so I think that's what we're seeing now is people saying, I know I can manage my employees. I know I can manage output if I just go back to the basics and do things the way I've done them. Um, and what they're really contending with is how do I actually accept the, what the future of work is and what's really changing and how do I actually start to lead my teams into uncertainty um, while still delivering these huge results. And it takes a lot of trust building on the team. It takes a lot of empathy for a lot of the employees that you're working with and, and teams that you're running that might have different priorities than you do. And that's really what I see executives wrestling with right now. A bunch to unpack, and that's a compliment. But one one word you said that always lights me up is empathy um, or maybe the lack thereof. Yeah. I think large organizations, in my experience, often do not prize empathy. They consider it a soft skill that is not necessary for productivity and, and shareholder uh, building shareholder value. But in my sense, uh, COVID has effectively surfaced empathy as a key skill, particularly for those who are no longer physically in the office and understanding productivity when people aren't there to to beat over the head or demand, you know, stick around for, uh, as that as the movie Office Space, you know, I'm going to need you on Sunday, yes. as the boss in Office Space said, that everybody can can relay. But are you seeing empathy, uh, particularly coming out of business schools, you have an MBA, as do I, are you seeing empathy uh, being considered a, an important uh, uh, management skill? Is it being taught? Can it be taught? Is it being measured? Is it something that is going to continue to grow in importance? Yes, I do think it be it's going to be something that's even more important. And just starting there, when I think about, when I talk a lot about the future of work and I think about what are those top topics that we're seeing, you know, empathy is one of them that's huge because AI is typically something that's dominating our airwaves right now and thinking I'm about- I'm sorry, what, what is that called? AI? AI? I, I haven't heard of it. Yeah, that. you probably yeah. haven't heard of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And thinking about how that's going to impact our uh, future jobs, what that's doing to eliminate jobs, people having some fear about what does that mean for my job. But when I actually fast forward past this current moment and I think about life in a, in a post-AI world and jobs in a post-AI world, what we're going to have is everything that can be routinized, anything that can be digitized, anything that can be automated will be. And what's left is actually our most human leadership traits. And that's really what's going to make the next generation of leaders rise to the top. And empathy is a huge part of that, Mark, as you know. So I think that's one where I see 
when I when we talk about training to the next level of generation, everything that we think of as a hard skill is something that's probably ripe for digitization and actually will be table stakes. And anything that's the most human elements of our leadership are the things that are really going to differentiate leaders in the future. So I think it's even more crucial than, frankly, what I, what I learned in my MBA a few years ago, which I, I absolutely value. But I'm really hoping that the next generation of leadership and some of what I teach actually at my alma mater, UVA, go who's, um, in leadership is really infusing humanity into a post-AI world in our leadership. I worked at GE for a short period of time, and, and Jack Welch, now he's gone, so I can tell this story, but he made us fire 10% of the workforce every year. And I, in my short, glorious career there, asked him, I basically said, can I not do that? Because my area was high growth. And he said, you're doing them a favor. And I said to myself, I bet in his mind, that's his definition of empathy. <laughs> that yeah. that he's, doing, <laughs> he's doing them them, 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 a, them a favor. But I also am wondering, where do degrees and credentials go in this sort of future of work? Having a BS, a BA, an MBA, a master's degree, a PhD, versus a set of credentials that empower you or the person for a chosen career with nimbleness and flexibility, it seems like there's just a whole rearranging of the deck chairs on, on those outcomes, and particularly from the cost of getting a degree. What are you seeing there in the future of work? Yeah, we're seeing what they're calling now the paper ceiling, where there used to be this element of without this certain credential, you can't go further. I think that- I like that. Thing. Paper yes. ceiling. That's really paper neat. Ceiling. And it's being disrupted or torn up, as it were, um, because we're seeing this huge disruption where the the cost of the higher education is outpacing what those um, individuals can earn back in terms of their out of degree or their next out of uh, college degrees. And what we're seeing is a, a real disruption there when it when you add AI to that and you think about the fact that. The, the jobs in the next 10 years, you know, haven't even been invented yet, there is going to be some disruption at that level. You're already starting to see it when you look at where recruiters are, are, are calling from. No longer is it just the alma mater of the, you know, the executive team. There's a, a diversification in terms of the types of schools and credentials that, that folks are going from. A lot of it's driven by M&A activity, where you see some large consulting firms or accounting firms, you know, hiring or, or acquiring a design firm or a cognitive thinking lab, you in, in general, you're going to get different talent from those sources. So I think it's really disrupting from the bottom up uh, quite a lot. And uh, and we've got our finger on the pulse on this because I've got two teenagers in my house who I know I'm prepping for a job that doesn't even exist yet. So we'll have to see how that unfolds. We tossed out a couple of, uh, of lingo pieces there. I want to, I want to, I want to go deep on that. That that M and A mergers and acquisitions. Obviously, there's a, a, it's not so much a joke, but a term I hear all the time, which is R and D, research and development. That M and A is the new R and D. That mergers and acquisitions is the new research and development. And that's my next question. So, there are so many larger entities gobbling up not just startups, but smaller entities to build. We see a lot of it here in D.C. Right. in the uh, in the government service space. Future of work, what are you seeing for millennials or younger, I say younger, employees under 40, when they transition from a smaller environment to a larger company? It seems like burnout seems to happen really quickly to those people. Is that just a culture clash or do you think there's some other factors that are kicking in? 
Yeah, I, I love this topic because I think there's so much layered in there. I think there's a couple things. First of all, I think there's a little bit of generational attitudes clash to your point of what the clash exactly is. And, you know, this is such a nuanced conversation because it, it would be wonderful if we as humans fit into neat little boxes and, and, and we want to do that because it makes it easier to manage. But the reality is we have all, all of these generational cohorts had different life experiences that have shaped what they think uh, the role of work is. And then within those cohorts, there's different things that are changing based on their life stage. So if you think about people entering the workforce, it's easy for us to say, oh, they just don't want to work and let's just wait until they have to pay for a mortgage and then that'll shape them up. But really what we're seeing is that Generation Z and millennials really highly value purpose and it actually doesn't take many percentage points off the, the numbers when you look at it compared to the relative um, you know, weight of financial security. So they put financial security and purpose kind of neck and neck in terms of importance, whereas you see other generations who may have grown up with the realities of war or the realities of financial security. And they might be in a position where they are ranking financial security far above purpose and, so, and, and looking for purpose outside of work. And so what we're seeing is this, is this culture clash, but it's really informed by the different life experiences of those generational cohorts. And, and I think that's important because when we actually look to address it, when we look at that burnout, there's so many different root causes of burnout. And if we just say, let's give everybody a ping pong table table and a pizza party or Fridays off, um, we're not really addressing the underlying need. Some people, when I coach on burnout, especially in a, an executive team, sometimes the team feels like they're burned out because they can't say no. It's not safe to say no. Sometimes they feel like they're burned out because there's a huge purpose at the company level, but their individual leader or business unit hasn't made that purpose super clear. Sometimes it's just, we all picked up really bad uh, working habits during COVID, like working in our beds you know, for 12 hours, without actually resetting that post COVID. And so people are getting emails at 10 PM and on Sundays and it's stressing them out. So I, I like to kind of look at what the, the actual drivers are. And with my clients, we go through a whole assessment that really isolates what are the variables driving that specific team so that you can get really tactical considerations for how to address that burnout in that younger generation. Wow. Once again, we're talking with Jenny Blumenthal. Jenny is the CEO and founder of Corporate Rehab here on What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh, with producer Tracy Madigan. When we come back, we're going to talk about what she was just talking about, which is purpose versus money, the impact of diversity on the workforce, and we've touched on it, the impact of artificial intelligence and machine learning in tomorrow's job market. More with Jenny after this. Joined once again and excited to be joined by Jenny Blumenthal. She is the CEO and founder of Corporate Rehab. Tell us about one of the acronyms that you and your colleagues use 
called Spark. We get asked a lot about burnout and stress. When we think about rehabbing leadership and going from surviving into thriving, so many of us really in the last three years from so many reasons for from tech layoffs to pandemics, you know, really we kind of get stuck in survival mode where we're playing small and we're not taking risks and we're just going to do what's necessary. And really to get to the innovation that the future of work requires, we have to shift ourselves out of survival and back into thriving. And so one framework I really use with clients, either individuals or sometimes at the team level, we just did this with a Fortune 500, where we go through a SPARK uh, exercise to relight the SPARK with your work. And SPARK stands for safety is the S, creating safety to speak up. Purpose is the P. So we were just talking about purpose and how important that is, not only for Gen Z, but for all of us at all levels. And that changes over the course of our lives. A is for ambition. So ambition is not a dirty word. Aligning ambition and drive to the things that are really going to make the biggest impacts on your goals. R is for reset. We reset the things that get in the way. What are the bad habits from COVID that, you know, that we have left to linger? Or what are some of the boundaries or ways that we use our time and energy that isn't as purposeful? And how can we kind of reset that and clear that out of the way? And then K stands for know and grow. So sometimes I've talked with, with clients and teams that everything else is going great. They just haven't really learned anything different in a while. And they feel like they need to do something different, but they feel this angst. And a lot of times Sometimes it's that they want to learn a new skill. AI is a great example of that. Um, and I see this a lot with my mission-oriented clients, whether it's nonprofits or government clients that say it's not this, you know, focus on revenue or it's not the focus on the hours. It's the fact that I really want to learn something different. And so that piece helps us really get back in touch with the things that help us grow as humans and relight the spark within our career. Tell me what the S stands for again. It's safety. Safety to speak safety. up. Yeah, Safety, purpose, ambition, reset, know and grow. It's a good yeah. one. Thanks. And I, I hope your clients get some traction in all five of those letters. Uh, but there's probably some they do better on than, than others. But let's let's focus on the last one, know and grow, because I think that uh, in my experience in big, medium and small companies is a key tactic. If you can if you can I have concluded that if you can keep people feeling that there's always another thing that they can learn to get better at what they do today. And if that's boring or not where they want to go, there's a place they can go in the company or a, or a tactic they can deploy to get smarter about something else. It just seems like in, in many ways, COVID may have been the best friend of that or maybe the enemy of that because we could stay at home and manage our time being productive for our colleagues and for the entity. Has has COVID taken kind of taken a bite out of that, or do you think COVID has been an accelerant for that, or is it on a case by case basis? Yeah, I think it, it definitely is a case by case basis. But we did see in the beginning um, of COVID, or really in the in the interim all of these different ways to learn, whether that's micro learning or, you know, having more things that people can consume in a hybrid environment was certainly um, something that we saw right away. I think that's taking a bit of a hit now as you think about the, the concept of whether we're in a recession, we're heading to a recession, we're done the re with the recession is really seeming to impact a lot of the learning and development budgets is from what I'm hearing across clients. And they're thinking about how do we continue to invest in our team but really make sure we're getting the most out of them from a revenue perspective too. And it has to be both, right? We can't overcorrect and say, it's just learning and we'll back off because unfortunately, or fortunately, we live in a, a short-term shareholder world and we've got
got to make sure we're meeting those targets. But the idea is that how can we continue to invest in our teams so that we keep them for the long run? And we're not actually not only burning them out, but hitting our own financial capital. It, it really, the, the latest stat is that it basically costs about 30% of an employee's salary to replace them, not only in knowledge capital, but then to find them and retain them and, and get them up to speed. And so it's not only the right thing to do, it's a profitable thing to do to try to reinvest in your employees to make sure that they stay in there for the long run. I think it's actually more than 30%. I, I think there's some untrackable costs yes. that if you do track them down, add a lot more yeah. um, to the productivity number and the, the financial cost of replacing somebody. And certainly- Certainly, uh, the the for tech talent now, they're they're the the cost of re replacing good tech talent and getting fresh tech talent to jump over to you for those yep. in the tech industry, they're, they're all getting more and more. So, let let's let's talk about the future of work from a standpoint of diversity. Um, mm -hmm. However, I mean, in my career, uh, I, I'm older than you, but you know, diversity was not a focus right. in the '80s and '90s. Shocking, um, and and now and now appropriately, it is in a, in a wide variety of ways. What's your sense of what diversity? has meant to young workers joining the workforce in the last five to 10 years. What do you think it'll mean to your teenage kids when they join the workforce, let's say 10 to 12 years from now? Yeah, it's interesting. I was doing some stats on this um, actually for something last week, and it was interesting pulling that, that Gen Z is actually now saying they are demanding diversity within the companies that they work for. So it's not just something that they're individually bringing in and saying, I want to make sure I'm part of a diverse team. They're actually using it as selection criteria for who they decide to um, apply with and, and figure out who they're going to work for. It'll be curious to see over the next couple of years, so many factors to determine, you know, how, how much progress will be made in that area versus not. But it's clear that the younger generation in all of the studies I've seen is absolutely asking for that. Um, the good news is the facts and figures back up uh, the benefits of diversity. We see that uh, diverse teams from a racial perspective outperform non-diverse teams. We see that female founders, outperform male founders when you actually look at profitability and revenue. So there's all kinds of things uh, are having a diverse team from a gender perspective. There's all kinds of stats that back up the fact that diversity is not only a nice to have, but a need to have for the future. I think when we add the AI topic that we've been talking about a lot, and we think about what's needed uh, moving forward, there's absolutely this bias that's going to come from just thinking of the world in whatever way you as an individual arrive at a certain problem um, that we're not going to get the benefit of solving if we're just limiting it to what we bring to the table, you know, in in whatever, um, you know, homogenous perspective that is. So I think there's a, there's a lot of that from an innovation perspective. We've only started to measure um, that's really going to start, you know, driving that even further. I think for our kids, it's really interesting having conversations with them because they, uh, for them, it's table stakes and it's not even an issue. They're surprised when um, when someone has to be reminded to hire for diversity or to think about diversity. So I'm I'm encouraged to hear how that's going to go moving forward. Um, I I do have to also think though that you know as I said in the beginning when we're thinking about when people immediately see something that's different, it invokes fear and we go back to what's familiar. And I think a lot of times we, whether it's the populism movement or, or any other thing, you could probably slide in there, um, we go back to what's familiar when we're scared. And I think so much of what I coach to and speak to in my clients is 
people are scared. People are feeling uncomfortable. People are feeling like they're in survival mode. And part of the empathy and the roles of leaders is to bring them into thriving by telling them they're safe, telling them we need them, making them feel belonging, making them feel connected. Um, and I'm hopeful that, you know, that rising tide lifts all boats when it comes to diversity, because if we're investing in the humans in our space, we're investing in diversity by default. So I've successfully failed my job as moderator by bringing up or waiting until the last couple of minutes to bring up AI. Uh, so it's a bit of a lightning round. But, you know, as P Scott Galloway, who I'm a fan of, once said recently, you're not going to lose your job to AI. You're going to lose your job to someone who's good at AI. Yes. And that, I think, was a portion of what perhaps earlier in the show you implied. I think AI is actually going to be less of an impact on many jobs than, than, than others. You've touched on with your comments that it's going to maybe uh, promote the the human factor what we're good for, good at as humans but what what are some arenas that you're particularly interested in as being most impacted by ai or those that are maybe uh, immune to an ai Im impact well what we're seeing based on the research now is that anything that we'd imagine that is more um, automated so technology things that are routine um, that are used basically are, are lower skills. So whether that's the back office from a healthcare perspective, or whether that's something that's just more, more paper today that can be digitized are going to be the things that um, that are impacted. Um, I tend to agree with Scott. I think, and it's probably a good thing to agree with Scott because his predictions tend to be true. But um, but I tend to agree with him in the sense that, you know, I think a lot of these, um, the jobs themselves are going to be changing. And again, hopefully that just frees up our mental capacity for higher order uh, problems to solve as opposed to the drudgery of what is involved with many of our jobs. And that's really the biggest thing that's going to change. So I see it in healthcare. I see it in, in high tech, those two areas. And in fact, I'm sure you know, as being in the VC world, those are the areas that are getting a ton of funding right now because we're seeing huge opportunities um, you know, for those to be impacted. I do think there's still going to be a, a huge uh, benefit for face-to-face. -face. So things that involve client service, things that are, in, you know, are, are just going to be enhanced by AI and not replaced by them. Um, and I think that's just the kind of thing that we're going to have to keep in mind that um, it, the even what we're calling AI today is going to look different in a couple of years. So it really might just be the advance of technology is going to have an impact in whatever form that takes. I completely agree. And I have also failed because we only have a minute left. So I'm going to ask you a tough question with a short answer. We ask all of our guests here on what's working in Washington, if they could, if they rule the world, what's one thing they would ha start happening or one thing they would stop happening? The first thing I do if I ruled the world is I would make everybody rehab their leadership, take some time to think about less about how they're impacting others externally and more about how they lead themselves. Because I think the key to leadership of anybody is actually how well you lead yourself. So I think that's the first thing. Um, okay. And uh, making sure everybody had a chance to, to think that through. And the second thing is I think I'd put term limits on everything. On our careers, on offices we hold, on where we live. you know, And really force people to get out of their comfort zone a little bit. Because I think too often just that fear of the familiar holds us back from the growth that we could achieve that's just available within us. Term limits on everything. That is a new one. Jenny, you you brought you you really brought it today with your predictions. I think that's a fascinating one. I actually happen to agree on, on both of your on both of your on both of your meta if I rule the world predictions. But overall, our conversation has been fascinating. Jenny Blumenthal, CEO and founder of Corporate Rehab. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Mark and Tracy. Look look forward to uh, talking to you again sometime soon. 
The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by the Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.